I mean, right now, I'm less interested in trying to convince them. I think if you're a marketer and you don't believe that influencers are powerful, then I don't even know what to say to you. You know, it's the same reason I don't like fight with Republicans is that like, we're obviously not dealing with the same reality. So what's the point of even having an argument? Welcome to Wave Social Podcast, powered by Arcade Studios. My name's Mike. I'm here with my co-host, Mitzi, and we've curated a show for digital marketers, advertisers, and modern entrepreneurs who want to stop chasing the tide and start making waves online. Each episode, we'll sit down with the tastemakers and strategic minds behind some of the most engaged communities and up-and-coming brands. We'll pull back the curtain on their strategies and experiences to uncover the methodology behind their seismic impact. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Before we get started, we want to tell you about We Edit Podcasts. We launched our show, Wave Social Podcast, last year, and uh, it was something we've been looking forward to for a long time, but there was a lot of stuff that we just didn't know how to do ourselves. Things like audio, engineering, transcription, all that good stuff like editing, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have a clue. So we pulled in the We Edit Podcast team to help us with that stuff so we could focus on the stuff that we know best. Exactly. So we get to focus on interviewing guests, finding the best guests and the most valuable guests for our listeners. And they take care of all the editing. They make us sound really good. They take out all the ums and ahs. And we get a finished product that we're really proud of. Yeah. So if you're looking to start a podcast, we want to introduce you to these guys because they can just help you rise above the noise while everyone else is starting a podcast too. This can help you just get a leg up on the rest. Yeah. So if you want to join us with the We Edit Podcast team, go to wavesocialpodcast.com slash we edit podcasts with an S at the end to get 15% off your first month of services. Can't wait to hear your show. Welcome to this episode of Wave Social Podcast. Not only is this a fun one, but it's an important and timely one. We got James Nord, who is the founder of the influencer marketing platform 4 and the host of Drink with James podcast, which Mitzi and I both tune into. Huge fan. 4 is a self-serve platform that allows you to run the best influencer marketing campaigns imaginable. It lets you find influencers, in fact, over 50,000 of them on the platform. It gets you verified analytics, which we all know are hard to come by in the world of influencer marketing. It also helps you find out if they have fake followers. Again, really crucial. As if that isn't enough, they also run managed campaigns. And from start to finish, initial idea to final report. And they use technology every step of the way to make these campaigns more efficient and effective. So James was an excellent guest. We can't wait for you to hear the interview. But first, Mitzi... I think we wanted to talk about Tumblr for a second. (laughs) Yeah, James mentions that he kind of got his start in the social media world on Tumblr. He was like a Tumblr OG influencer back then. And I actually distinctly remember Tumblr OG influencers who had these like pop-in pages and they had like just the most perfect curated posts and it was just so cool. But James was not only a Tumblr influencer, he was a photographer. So it kind of blew my mind when he even mentions that because I'm like, you were one of those accounts that I'm sure I saw that I was like, oh my gosh, look at all these cool photographers. And this was like pre-blogging days. So I thought that was pretty cool. And it got me thinking about our first like social media experience. I think I was completely oblivious to the world of Tumblr (laughs) at that time. Yeah, I was so sheltered. I was probably still homeschooling, (laughs) you know, probably had some nice nerdy glasses and gel in my hair. (laughs) But I think I first jumped in, if we're talking about origin stories or how you got into social, I first jumped in with MySpace. So you can can see even just in that sense that I was a little bit late to the game, but I loved MySpace. I had a blast. (laughs) was really pumped when Tom sent me that first message. I know. I remember actually like calling my brother over and being like, oh my gosh, I have my first friend. His name's Tom. (laughs) Yeah. Talk about a great customer experience. Thanks, Tom, from MySpace. (laughs) No kidding. I mean, some regret with MySpace too, because I still, for the life of me, cannot log into my old account. I was trying to do some online reputation management like last summer and burned way too many calories trying to get into that account. I can't. So it does still exist. Hopefully you can't find it. It's a treasure if you do find it. Oh, goodness. I think my first social media platform was Nextopia, which I don't think was available to You seem like everyone. a Nextopia girl. <laughs> I was all about Nextopia. I was like constantly updating my 
top 10 photos. <laughs> yeah, I was also on the MySpace wagon and of course Facebook. And James actually flexed a little bit. He was user number, what did he say? 1100? 1100 on Instagram. Yeah, which was wild because it means that he signed up within the first 20 minutes of the app being live. That's so crazy. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty. I wish I was an early adopter with the platform like Instagram. Facebook has just changed so much. It's kind of mm-hmm. like an ad platform more so now, but Instagram still has a great social component. And if you were one of those early adopters, you definitely had the jump on people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he gets into like influencer life, which is really cool that he kind of had that perspective of the potential that influencers have way before Instagram entered the scene. So he was not only an early adopter, but he kind of championed this potential that influencer marketing could bring for brands. So he gets into that in the interview. And we also talk about the platform, of course, which is an incredibly valuable resource that we actually use at our team. It's an awesome platform. And for, I think, this month or next month, for a month, you can get access to the platform for free, which is crazy because it does cost quite a bit of money and it's a really valuable tool. So brands can get access to it. Marketers can get access to it and influencers can get access to it. So if you haven't already, use this time to check it out. Yeah, I think that's really cool that Four is taking that approach. We've seen a lot of brands and marketers and just people in general kind of rising to the occasion right now with this COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm really happy to see that. My hope is, and I know Four is great at just always thinking about how they can help both influencers and brands, but I want to see other brands doing that too. I want to see other companies and marketers kind of continuing that perspective after this is all over, after everyone's back to work. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we get some semblance of normalcy back, my hope is that that perspective of how can I contribute or how can I help the greater good or how Mm -hmm. can I do something outside of my core competency to just make a difference. I think that's going to be really valuable if we can hold on to that longer than just the next couple months. Yeah. I'd love for us to continue thinking about how we can contribute and not just like show off, which I think social media kind of went to that place. So I feel like if we can continue that trajectory after this is all over, that would be really fun. Yeah. And James kind of alludes to that a little bit too, with how just our perspectives or postures are changing right now with Mm -hmm. social media. I won't go into detail about it because you can listen to the interview. Before we get into the interview, we want to read another review. Let's do it. So Mitzi, you got this one? Oh yeah. This review is from Chrissy Latch 87. It says, I truly enjoyed listening to your podcast. The hosts are like friends that you can talk to about social media and tech savvy stuff. I love how you guys make it easy to understand and relate very helpful tools and facts that we can use every day. I will keep listening to gain more valuable insight along the way that I can share to others in social media. Thanks for a great podcast. Thank you, Chrissy. Uh, Thank you so much. I'm a words of affirmation person, so this is just blessing my soul. But thank you for the review and thanks to all of you listeners who have done so already. You know this makes a big difference and I'm sure you listen to lots of podcasts and they talk about it on everyone. But thanks for taking the time to let us know what you like and you know it makes a difference for us. Yeah, and if there's anything specific that you want us to cover or talk about or an interview, let us know on social media. You can find it at Wave Social on Instagram and Twitter. Okay, that's that. Should we get into it? Let's go. Let's do it. Hold up. Before we get into it, I want to tell you about ClearBank. ClearBank provides capital for e-commerce brands who want to grow their business through digital advertising. As agency partners, we get to work with a lot of e-commerce brands that are trying to build their business online. A common obstacle that they come up against is they start with a small budget, they see some exciting early results, but then they don't have the capital available to scale. So that's what ClearBank does so well. You give them access to the back end of your website. They have an algorithm that analyzes the health of your store. And then as quickly as 48 hours, they can give you access to the funds that you need to add to your advertising campaigns. And you don't have to give up any equity. There's also no fixed interest rate and you don't have to risk your credit score to get access to funds for ads. As a ClearBank agency partner, we get a preferred rate, which we're happy to extend to you, our listeners. So head to wavesocialpodcast.com slash ClearBank, that's C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C to get access to that rate. James, thanks so much for joining us on the show today, man. We're really excited to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to talk about myself and my company and influencers. So thanks for having me. 
Yeah, and that's just it. We've been really tuned in to Drink With James and your thought leadership around influencer marketing, and especially during this time with COVID-19 and all that's happening around the world. So I think this is going to be really valuable for our our listeners. As far as uh, where we want to start, I think obviously you're a major player in the influencer marketing space and our listeners want to know specifically how you got there. So maybe if you can rewind a little bit and map out what those big steps or milestones were along the way to building four. And uh, I heard a rumor started on Wall Street. Wall Street. Yes. Yeah. So I'll try and, you know, now I'm I'm getting a little older and I feel like the story gets longer as I get older. So I'll try and keep it as brief as I can. But yeah, I moved to New York like in 2006 and economy was, was a bit soft then. This was before the collapse, but already you know, things weren't going great. There weren't a lot of jobs. And uh, the only place I could get a job was Wall Street. So I took a job as a futures and commodities broker trying to trade Forex, foreign exchange. And I was doing like, you know, you had to make 200 and no, 160 phone calls a day or talk on the phone for at least 220 minutes before you could leave Whoa. every day. That'd be my nightmare. I hate yeah. phone calls. <laughs> so it was just like smile and dial, total chop shop, you know. Um, it wow. was a terrible job that I hated. And I kind of bounced around and left there and ended up doing some early digital marketing e-com stuff. And I think that like my career as it is now really started when I started the Tumblr. So this was a couple months after Tumblr launched as a platform. And I was bored and this was a new thing and I didn't know any code and you could create a blog really easily. So I started one of those. And again, it was a really small platform and the internet was just a much smaller place then. Normal people did not publish content on the internet. That was something that just kind of like strange people did. And so, you know, I started to take photography a little bit more seriously. And as I did that, the blog got a little bit more popular and I got to be one of the kind of recommended users on Tumblr and Fast forward, you know, four or five years, and I was one of the most followed photographers on Tumblr. And I wanted to try and turn that into working with brands. Again, this was really before brands worked with bloggers, I guess, at the time we called ourselves. Influencer was not a word yet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would reach out to brands. And again, I had my like kind of background as a salesperson on Wall Street. And so I would just email, cold email. CEO of fashion companies and be like, hey, Prada, like, I love what you do. And I would love, you know, there's this whole conversation happening online and you're not part of it. And like, send me some clothes and we can like collaborate on a shoot. And that never worked. I never got anything from that. (laughs) But I did end up meeting somebody who worked at Tumblr and they introduced me to the team at Oscar de la Renta. And I was able to shoot something for them. And that turned into me continuing to shoot for them. And that turned into me being Oscar de la Renta's in-house photographer for their social and PR. And then from there, my life changed pretty quickly. And I remember, you know, I always had a full-time job. I never did photography full-time. Again, these were different times. Nobody made money off of putting stuff on the internet. So Mm -hmm. I got a call from Puma and they said, hey, you know, would you be interested in flying to Dubai and shooting and covering this yacht race that we're participating in? And I was like, <laughs> first Casual. of all, what? <laughs> you know, and again, like, that's like more normal now, right? Like influencers yeah. go on trips, crazy trips all the time. I remember this had like a big Mashable. This was back when Mashable was the thing. And there was a big Mashable mm-hmm. article because this was one of the first times a brand had, you know, done a trip with bloggers. There was, I think, eight of us that went on this trip. And I came back from that trip and said, you know, it feels like there's something interesting here. You know, Puma was spending $20 million a year supporting this yacht racing team. And I think what I saw was that it would have been impossible for them to tell the story of that team and of what they were doing in sailing if they hadn't worked with the individuals that went on that trip. And Hmm. After I left Wall Street, again, I was mostly working in marketing and I felt like, gosh, if we could make this what I do, if we could make it kind of feel to marketers like another kind of marketing by providing verified real analytics and statistics, 
this could eventually be a, like a new kind of marketing and we could get media budgets from brands and we could turn this into an actual, you know, something that isn't just an experiment, but an actual part of brands marketing budgets. And so that was the kind of initial thought and, you know, started the company in 2012 and launched in early 2013. We were the first influencer marketing platform in the world. Um, so we were very early and that's kind of how it started. I saw the power of those opportunities. You know, I think I struggled for, you know, half a year to get a brand to want to work with me. And then when I got that connection to the inside, it all kind of changed really quickly. And we thought, you know, could we create a platform that could do that at scale? When it comes to influencer marketing, there's a podcast that covers it all that you will want to add to your playlist. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. They talk about influencer marketing, social media, the creator economy, social commerce, and much, much more. They cover all aspects, including the creator economy, social commerce, the latest trends, the metaverse, TikTok trends, and that's just the beginning. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Add the podcast to your playlist right now. Wow, very cool. So you started four and were you focused on building a tech company or did you want to start campaigns and working on campaigns and then add the technology later? Yeah, I just wanted to have a tech company. Campaigns weren't a thing, you know, mm. nobody spent money. I mean, there was an idea early on of like these kind of trips like Puma did that like, oh, maybe you could charge for that to put that together. But bloggers weren't being paid for these opportunities. And, you know, at the time, I mean, it was crazy to be, I mean, I'm from Georgia, right? And for me to go to an Oscar de la Renta show and shoot it for that brand, you know, to be, you know, photographing celebrities, like that was the payment for me because yeah, nobody, no it was just absolutely crazy to me, you know? And it was about the opportunities. And so there was no, initially it was about discovery. You know, brands didn't have any way to find new people. And when they mm -hmm. found them, they, you know, at the time Tumblr was so popular and blogs were so important, but you couldn't tell how many viewers someone's blog had. You couldn't tell how many followers someone had on Tumblr without asking them. And so because we connected to the APIs, we could pull that data in automatically so we kind of removed this step and this point of friction for brands. And so we made it really easy for them to find out that information. And so, yeah, we just wanted to be a technology company and that was the real initial focus. And then as the years went on, I think what ended up happening is as budgets got bigger, for me, it wasn't, we didn't start doing campaigns because there was more money in it. We started doing campaigns because it's where the most complex problems were. Hmm. And I knew that to create great technology, we needed to make sure that that technology was solving the most difficult problems. And yeah. discovery was no longer the hardest thing. It was when we started, but then it became about how do you execute campaigns at scale? You know, how do you do mm -hmm. a lot of this really easily? Because it mm -hmm. was, it was hard. There's people involved, you know, and you know, I think this week we have 95 campaigns going on. I think we're working with 1,100 influencers. So we were able to, you know, build the technology to go out and solve those problems. So when you started building this technology, obviously you saw that there was a problem or even more so an opportunity, you know, to create this different type of marketing for brands. So you connected to the APIs and kind of put the first iteration together and made that connection for brands? Was it one of those things where they were just like ready for this? And as soon as you did it, they were like, give it to us? Or did you have to do a lot of like educating or convincing for yeah. brands to give this a try? That's a great question. I mean, the first two years, I had to first pitch the brand on why they should care about what we were doing at all. Why should they should think about influencers or bloggers at all. And then if I could get them to listen to that, then I could say, hey, you should use my tool to do more of this. So yeah, it was a lot of convincing. There was some low-hanging fruit in New York early on. I mean, actually, luxury fashion was really on top of this then. I mean, Oscar de la Renta was really innovative. You know, you had Kate Spade. I mean, some of our first clients were like Chanel, Oscar de la Renta, Bottega Veneta, Saint Laurent, Gucci. You know, 
brands that were kind of on the bleeding edge of culture and I think were looking at this as a cultural opportunity. And so they got it, but traditional marketers, no, they had no Mm -hmm. interest. (laughs) I feel like that took a long time to show people why influencer marketing is really important. Like, I think there are still some traditional marketers out there who still need to be convinced. And a lot of people haven't really used influencer marketing yet as a strategy. So what do you say to those people when you're trying to convince them of why this is a great place to spend some ad dollars? Yeah. I mean, right now, I'm less interested in trying to convince them. I think if you're a marketer and you don't believe that influencers are powerful, then I don't even know what to say to you. You know, it's the same reason I don't like fight with Republicans is that like we're obviously not dealing with the same reality. So what's the point of even having an argument? I think most marketers have, you know, understand that this is important. Look, what marketing and advertising is about purchasing attention. That's all it is, is that brands that can't get enough attention on their own, can't get enough eyeballs organically. They need to pay to buy their way into somebody's life. And so mm-hmm. advertising dollars have always, will always follow attention. And wherever the eyeballs are is where the ad dollars are spent. Now, I think that number probably trails you know, a few years a lot of times. And you know some brands are slower to adopt, but you can't deny that people are on social and you can't deny that, you know, a recommendation from someone you have a relationship, feel like you have a relationship with or have a relationship with is more effective than an ad from a brand that you have no relationship with. So I don't find the conversation of is influencer marketing viable or is it something I should be doing a conversation worth having? Because that's usually people that just want to kind of be naysayers. I will yeah. talk about what's the best way to do it. I think a lot of influencer marketing is poorly done. I think a lot of it is a huge waste of money. I think there's a lot of systemic problems in the industry that need to be addressed that nobody wants to address because people are getting rich on it. I'll have that conversation all day. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> but yeah, I don't get that as much as I used to. I'm like, right. Is this worth it? Totally. What about for marketers that are tuned in and whether they're at an agency level or on the brand side, maybe they are spending some money on influencer marketing, but they also have budgets in like Facebook ads and and SEM and other places. What do you say in communicating with those types who are already aligned in their worldview around marketing, but you think they should spend more money on influencers specifically or more proportion of their budget? Yeah. I mean, look, influencer marketing, like a lot of other channels, it doesn't have a conversion problem. It has an attribution problem. Yeah. You know, you just can't, and you, you can't attribute the sales to the influencer. It's essentially impossible right now. You know, I'm user number 1100 on Instagram. I signed up in the first probably 20 minutes and every decision I make is probably influenced by that platform, the vacations I used to go on, the restaurants I used to go to, the clothes (laughs) I used to buy Mm -hmm. are all influenced by it. But I don't swipe up and buy something. I've never purchased something through Instagram. And, you know, I just think by nature, it's first click marketing. And I think what we'll look back on in 10 years as marketers is I think we'll say we put way too much money, time, and emphasis on retargeted Facebook ads. I think it's genius, but I think retargeted Facebook ads look so effective when in fact they're not that effective. You know, I think that they are taking credit for the vast amount of marketing that is existing. Like for that, you mean that like the influencer marketing or the organic social content is doing a lot of the heavy lifting and then the sale is getting attributed to the yeah. retargeting? Yeah. Okay. And look, I think that that's the way it should work, right? There's right. top yeah, of the yeah. funnel marketing, there's bottom of the funnel of marketing. But the problem is, is that if your CMO looks at the numbers and says, well, let's see, $100,000 of Facebook ads turned into $200,000 of revenue and $100,000 of influencer ads turned into... $10,000 in revenue. So mm-hmm. what are you going to do? You're going to double down on Facebook and cut your mm-hmm. influencer budget. But mm-hmm. yeah. the problem is, is that you know, you're not able to see it as a full stack. You're not thinking about that full funnel. And I mean, it's the biggest impediment to 
the continued growth of influencer marketing is how we handle the attribution question. I mean, a really quick anecdote is I was talking to this guy, he's a big performance marketing nerd and worked at this company. They were spending about a million bucks a month across all their channels. And he was trying to solve this attribution problem. And he first, like he had 50% of his sales that were just organic. He couldn't track them at all. And, you know, Influencers was 2.5% of his sales. And so he looks at it and says, essentially, influencer marketing is way too expensive. It's not doing anything for us. So first thing he does is he pauses all advertising for a month and tracks his sales. And then he slowly starts to reintroduce, you know, Facebook ads or, you know, Google ads, whatever it might be to kind of track to see if he can solve this attribution problem and figure out where that organic sales is coming from. That doesn't work. So then what he starts to do is he says, he just asks every single person that makes a purchase has to answer the question, how did you hear about us? So he does that for a month and he looks at the data. And what he found was that when you ask that question, that 2.5% that was coming from influencers, that went up to 42%. Mm, Wow. When he asked, how did you hear about us? so So this is a guy who was a hardcore Facebook guy, hardcore performance guy, didn't believe in influencer marketing, but you know, went and did the research and did the work to figure out where are things coming from and saw, wow, the vast majority, of, not the vast majority, but you know, almost half of our sales are coming from people that said they heard about us through an influencer. And so he, I think five or 10X'd his influencer budget from there. So wow. I think, you know, Solving that attribution problem is something that we are really focused on, but certainly is a tough hurdle to jump over. Definitely. That's actually something that we're trying to do as well, just on our agency side, is trying to solve the attribution problem for influencer marketing. We know it's important and it's doing a lot of the top funnel activity for us, but... Yeah, you can feel the impact. It's Mm -hmm. just hard to articulate it in a clear way that earns more budget. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, look, and not to get too marketing geeky. I don't know. Maybe that's what your audience is into. But, you know, part of the problem as well is that, you know, the brands aren't doing a good job integrating the influencer work into the broader funnel. So Mm. let's say I see a a post from a bunch of influencers because you were doing a campaign for one of your clients. But like then miraculously, I'm supposed to get kind of dumped into the brand's larger marketing funnel. And I just don't think that those funnels are optimized effectively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is we're launching this thing called micro funnels, which is essentially that, you know, our idea is that under each influencer, we want to build out a larger funnel that is completely personalized. So one example is like the first tool that we built for this is Instead of an influencer saying, hey, here's a discount code for, you know, 25% off, use, you know, James 25 or something. Mm-hmm. They have a perks email channel. So they say, hey, go put your email address into this form and you'll get 25% off your purchase or whatever. And then those emails that we deploy come from the influencer on behalf of the brand. They use the influencer's content. They're in the influencer's voice. They help flesh the story out a little bit. So now we run a campaign with 50 people. We have 50 different email databases with 50 different drip campaigns, all of which are using content and copy from the influencer. Our next step that we want to do is, you know, we want to make sure that the Facebook ads that, you know, the influencer's audience see are of, are using the influencer. So of course, most of our clients are using influencer content for their Facebook campaigns. But mm-hmm. I'm talking about tiny campaigns that are just targeted at that audience that use that influencer's imagery and content for the ads. And then eventually, why shouldn't the you know product page be variable and allow us to plug that influencer's content in as well? So that wow. the full, you know, in that whole experience, it feels personalized and it feels special and it feels like it is coming from that person who you already trust instead of I heard a message from this person I trust and know, and now I'm dumped into some anonymous marketing funnel for a multi-billion dollar brand that isn't specific or targeted to me at all. Wow, that's such a powerful yeah. observation. I think, yeah. It's it, blowing my mind. Let's keep going marketing geeky. I love that. 
Um, I think that helps us a lot already with some of the campaigns we're running, but I know that'll be value for our listeners mm-hmm. too. And I think it the reason it makes so much sense to me is because we've really been, I guess, like articulating influencers as like gatekeepers to an audience Which, that trusts them already. Yeah. You know? And that's actually language that we borrowed from you, James, like mm-hmm. from your podcast. Like you, I feel like that's the first time I heard that kind of mm-hmm. language around influencers, which yeah. makes sense. So that makes sense why obviously it would just fall so flat if you get thrown into this broader funnel yeah. and have no other touch point with that type of similar experience. And that's, you know, that is why we, look, we're actually in the midst of, I mean, by the time this comes out, we're changing all the language on our site. We're essentially saying, look, we don't do influencer marketing anymore. What we do is ambassador marketing. And, you know, we've run 2,600 campaigns paid influencers over $30 million and worked with over 25,000 influencers over the last five years. So, you know, we've seen what works and what doesn't. And what's working is these deeper relationships, these longer term partnerships, the kind of, you know, working with influencers that have either already loved the brand or we give them the time and space to fall in love with that brand so that when, you know, they go to hit publish, it should feel not like a normal ad, but feel like somebody that loves that brand and is a real fan of it and is excited to be working, you know, with them. So that's been, I think, a shift that we've been kind of, a kind of path we've been walking down now for the last couple of years. We just haven't known what to call it. And some of the work, you know, we've done with the Sephora squad and things like that have been really effective. And with that, we said, look, it's crazy that, you know, any other job in the world you have to apply for. But for influencers, you just, you know, they don't apply. You know, they just, you reach out to them and you say, hey, I've got money for you. Do you want to do this? And of course they say yes, right? But you don't know then because you've already offered the money. You don't know if they really want to do it, if they're just doing it for the money. And so for Sephora, we said, let's turn this on its head and say Sephora's got healthy budgets. They're giving out 25 year long ambassador contracts that will be, you know, pretty hefty. The only way to get access to them is you have to apply. And so if you really want this, you have to put yourself out there and you have to apply for it. And, you know, we found a group of people that we would have never found if we did this in the traditional way. Yeah. Because we found people that, you know, for them working with Sephora was their dream. That was literally like, the biggest thing in their life. And, you know, we have these great videos of people learning, you know, we ask them to record themselves right when they find out that they won and they're crying and their family is around them crying. And like this changed a lot of people's lives, you know, but like the power of that, when we saw it and we saw it throughout the whole year of how effective that was, we were just even more convinced that, you know, marketers need to be putting in the work to go out and find partners that, you know, really make sense for the brand and will will approach it like a partnership, not like I'm the talent, you're lucky to have me, and mm-hmm. I'm here for the paycheck. Cool. I don't I, know uh, how we got there. To, yeah. I don't even know what the initial question was, so I apologize. But <laughs> No, it's all good. It was great. It's really good. I think I just want to kind of press in on you were talking about like longer term relationships mm-hmm. between brands and influencers. And I think that we'd be missing out if we didn't talk more about how to find the right fit between brands and influencers. Because I know obviously like follower size is important and Mm -hmm. like reach and impressions and whatnot. But I think like so many brands are just picking influencers based on those metrics and not so much on how they actually integrate with their persona or their tone or Mm -hmm. even like what type of audience they have or where they are. So can you talk about what's more important from your perspective out of those types of things when matching an influencer with a brand for a campaign? Yeah. So it's, I don't want to say this. We've traditionally resisted kind of saying, this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing, you know? And I think that what is true and what is difficult about picking influencers for a campaign is that you know, the partner that you pick, the influencer that you pick is the distillation of all of the strategy of everything in that campaign, right? Like mm-hmm. all of your thinking, everything you want to achieve in it should be represented in the people that you pick. And so, you know, influencers are, 
you know, for marketers, you got to think of them as almost as tools, right? And they're different tools for different jobs. And so there is no one metric that is most important. You know, I talk about a friend of mine, Grace Atwood, a lot because she, you know, has surprised me over the last couple of years and that she, you know, doesn't have a great Instagram following. She doesn't have great engagement on her Instagram. You know, she'll say herself, she does not take beautiful, you know, editorial photos. And yet she, you know, she outperforms every time she's in a campaign, she outperforms almost everyone in terms of conversions and, you know, traffic and driving action. So for a lot of people, Grace is an amazing partner to work with. But if it was a luxury brand and they were, you know, trying to create beautiful, inspiring content, she's a terrible person to work with, Hmm. you know? And so the metrics are only important if you have a strategy and you understand what that strategy is. And then you understand which metrics you should be looking at when thinking about what person should I be picking? You know, one big thing that we always tell people, like if you don't have a tool like four and, and you can't afford that, you know, what I would ask myself is, why does this person have a following? And do people care about what they have to say? Because we always say there's a difference between having an audience and having influence, you know? And if you think about the people that you follow on your Instagram, and I'm sure you have people that have big followings that if they told you to purchase something or to pay attention to something or whatever, if they asked you to do something, you wouldn't do it right? Because you don't care. It doesn't mean you don't enjoy following them. It might mean that they have beautiful photography and you love seeing their photos, but you don't necessarily care about what they have to say. Flip side, you know, you might have someone that has 10,000 followers that if they ask you to do something or if they suggest a product that you really listen and that person has actual influence over you. And so we always try and ask ourselves, you know, why does this person have a following? Is it because they're genetically gifted and they're beautiful and people like to follow beautiful people? Mm -hmm. Okay. That has value, but it probably doesn't have as much value as somebody who has half a million followers because for the last 10 years, they've been doing beauty tutorials and talking about skincare and people respect what they have to say about makeup, you know? If I look at those two people, a model with 500,000 followers and a person with 500,000 followers who's been giving advice, I'll pay 10x for the person who's been giving advice than for Mm. the model. Because the reason people are following that model isn't for makeup tips. Right. You know, their face probably looks the way it does because (laughs) they got very lucky in the womb. On that note, like thinking about why do people follow a person, like what kind of advice can you give to someone who's trying to grow their following or be an influencer that brands want to work with? Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Yeah, I think that like, if you think of the word influencer, right? Okay, it means you have to be able to influence people generally to do that. Again, let's just like break this down outside of Instagram, right? You know, I race bikes in New York City, like amateur bike racer. Love, you know, riding bikes for 10 years, big part of like who I am. And most people, if you follow my Instagram or just know me, you probably know I ride bikes. And so I get a lot of people that ask for bike recommendations when they're looking to get a bike because they figure I know a lot more about bikes than they do. And so they instead of doing the research themselves, can just ask me, mm-hmm. right? So I have influence in that world because I have authentically, I like know more about it than most people. And I think that that is true of the influencer space as well. Like, you know, what is your thing that you're better at than most people? What do you understand 
better than most people. I, I didn't start doing four didn't have an Instagram for the first four years that we were in existence. And I didn't start drink with James until I think four or five years in. The reason was I didn't feel like I knew enough yet. I didn't feel like we knew what story we wanted to tell. But at this point, again, with how much work we've done, I feel like it's easier for me to go out and talk about it because I, I'm confident in my knowledge and that I do know more about this than most people in the world. And so I feel free to talk about it. But if you don't have that skill, if you don't have something that you understand better or you're better at, or you have a unique point of view, then I don't think you have any chance of being an influencer. You know, you have to have that thing, you know, and it can just be that you have great style, you know, mm -hmm. and that people love the way you put clothes together. That's fine. But that is something. And we always look for that. What is the underlying skill? What is the underlying thing? And, you know, I always tell influencers like, you know, when I was shooting and I was kind of trying to become a better photographer, I was so focused on that. I would wake up every day and I'd say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm not going to go to sleep tonight until I take at least five really good photos. And, you know, I spent hours and hours walking around New York City and then watching YouTube videos on editing and trying to copy photographers that I respected. And I was like honing my craft and influencers need to do the same thing. You need to have a craft, a thing that you are better at than most people, because if not, then what story are you telling? You're just adding noise. And that's when you start focusing on growth and growing your following instead of what you really need to focus on, which is what is the thing that I can put into the world that is going to make it a more interesting, more entertaining, more inspiring, more beautiful place? You know, what viewpoint do I have that other people don't that is compelling? What thing do I know more about than most people that I can show them and teach them and enrich their lives? And I think if you do that and you think about, you know, what is it that I understand that I can give away to other people for free? and get them excited and just do that, you probably, I think the following will come. Yeah. That's great, great advice. Yeah. I think it's good timing to hear advice like that too, even just with how many people are at home right now. Many have been laid off and just have extra time on their hands. So I think a lot of people right now are asking, what do I do with this time? And if they mm -hmm. can use that to, to hone a craft or kind of get an edge on other people that have a similar perspective that they're trying to put out there too, then this is the opportunity. Yeah. And look, I mean, nobody is owed a following. Not everybody is cut out for this. Not everyone is going to be able to build a following. And, and people will reach out sometimes and be like, oh, I've been doing this for four years and I've got a thousand followers and it's just not, I can't figure it out. I take all, I, you know, I read all the blogs and I take your advice. And, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, this is, this, maybe this just isn't for you, you know, and you can still publish on Instagram and just enjoy it. But not everybody gets to have a career in this. You can't just muscle your way into it. Growing up, I wanted to be a professional golfer, but like I didn't have the talent. So like, while I got good, I could never get good enough. It was never going to happen. Uh, you know, again, going back to bike racing, I could quit my job and train 40 hours a week. I will never be a professional athlete. I just don't have it. And so, I think that's true of this space as well, is that, you know, doing all the right things, taking all the advice does not entitle you to a following. And sometimes your skills or who you are isn't the right, you know, you're not right for it, or it's the wrong time. You know, maybe you're just too late or it's the wrong platform. Maybe TikTok worked better for you. Wow, awesome. We need a whole other episode for TikTok. <laughs> yeah, we'll have you back. Because the whole coronavirus pandemic isn't over yet, I think we want to address it a little bit. And we've heard bits and pieces from you on the topic on other channels. So you don't have to necessarily repeat yourself. But can you just talk to us for a few minutes about what COVID-19 means for brands and marketers right now and what part influencers have to play in maintaining that strong connection between brands and customers? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, as you guys know, it's crazy out there. Mm -hmm. I think right now, you know, when this all broke out and like a month ago, I, you know, I sent this email of predictions out to our clients. And one of them was that, you know, I thought that long term we'll see brands 
moving budgets into influencer marketing and influencer marketing will only grow. People are spending more time on their phones. Live sports are canceled. You know, all of these factors that make influencer marketing really compelling right now, you know, that hasn't happened yet because brands right now are not focused on strategy. They're focused on survival. They just have to figure out how to make it through the next one, two, three, six months. But what we are seeing, I think, is that I don't think that you can deny the power of social. You know, I think the world has seen how powerful social media is, and I don't think the world can go back to not seeing that. I mean, if you think about connecting people and mental health and all the issues that are kind of abundant right now, And you think about the tools and platforms that are helping to solve those, you know, it's not television, you know, it's not movies, it's not newspapers, it's social media, you know, Mm -hmm. that's keeping people connected. That's keeping them from feeling isolated. That's entertaining them. It's, it's educating them about what's going on in the world. It's giving them a way to help out. It is literally running the world right now. And I don't know that you can go back to a reality where you don't acknowledge that more fully. So, you know, long term, I still do believe that, you know, brands will more than ever see the power of influencers in the short term. Brands are running out of content. You know, one of our large multi-billion dollar clients was saying they have one week of social content left before they run out. And so those brands that, you know, it could be months before brands can do photo shoots again. And we're already seeing it. Zara sent a bunch of models their clothes and had the models shoot in their apartments. And that's what's on the website now. So I think, you know, we'll be seeing more of that in the coming weeks for sure. Yeah. What kind of data is your team analyzing around this COVID-19 crisis? Like, have you seen, you know, you kind of mentioned already, but Social media usage is obviously up, but any other kind of data that you guys have discovered? Yeah, I mean, we have a whole data science team, so they're kind of plugging away at everything. We're we're looking at you know the percentage of sponsored posts. We're looking at you know we're tracking the usage of different words, quarantine versus coronavirus versus you know sponsor anything to try and see what's happening, as well as doing surveys of influencers. You know, we just did one and found that. You know, 50% of influencers have reduced their prices. The average reduction is 30%. So great time to be building a campaign right now if you are a brand because rates are lower than they have traditionally been. So, you know, look, we understand that like it's a slow time for sales, right? There's not a lot of companies that are briefing in new projects, not at the volume that they were a month ago. And that will change and we'll, you know, we won't go back to normal, but we'll go back to some kind of normal. And for us in the short term, you know, what we've seen our role as is just doing as much as we can to educate. And, you know, in times of crisis and confusion, I think people want to be led and they want to, you know, feel like somebody is telling them it's going to be okay. And this is what the world's going to look like when this is over. And we've been trying to you know, to do that as much as we can, I think been, you know, relatively successful. I'm super proud of what the team's been doing. So they've been cranking out data stories and analysis of everything mm-hmm. pretty consistently. Yeah, I've been following along and your team is doing an amazing job. And I have to give props to you too, James, because I know as an agency owner, you know, we're in the trenches and and lots has changed for our business and it's really hard to be vocal and to be, you know, pull away from your business that needs you, but also be vocal for your industry. So you guys have been doing a great job at that. Thank you. I'm curious, like everyone's kind of chipping in right now to do good or to help with what's happening. And we see, I think more so brands being vocal about that or starting to or starting to step up and, you know, like change their production towards masks or hand sanitizer, Mm -hmm. things like that. Is there something for the influencers that are listening that, yeah, they've reduced their rates and they're still doing campaigns. But is there anything else that they can do to help businesses who are even specifically suffering right now mm-hmm. through this? Or have you seen anything cool as far as like different types of campaigns coming out of this? I think there's a lot of influencers out there that are pivoting to use their platforms to talk about small businesses and to you know try and help companies survive this. And so I don't have a like a specific example 
because I feel like it's so ubiquitous, which is so great that it feels like right now, most influencers are trying to do what they can to either support companies that are helping or to actually help themselves in fundraising or, you know, if they make product to be giving away the profits or whatever for that product. So that's been really great to see. And I think, you know, what we are telling influencers is that, you know, I think as a business owner, I think you understand maybe a bit more how catastrophic the last month has been for companies. And, you know, I think brands have funded this industry for five years. And of course, it's been a two-sided transaction and they've paid for, you know, they've paid money and they've gotten value back in, in advertising. But now is the time for any influencer to be supporting those brands that have supported you in the past. You know, of course, the big companies, they're going to make it through this. They've got relationships with banks and they're able to take on debt and, you know, and get access to stimulus money and things like that. Like they'll make it through it. It doesn't change the fact that like this is catastrophic, you know, for almost every company. And of course, yes, like be out there supporting those small local businesses because those are much more likely to go out of business. Uh, We're already starting to see that. And I think in the next month or two, where it's going to be really depressing to see how many companies shut down, but also the, you know, also make sure you're supporting those big companies that have worked with you and have paid you over the years and, and reach out and ask, Hey, is there anything we can help with? You know, a lot of those companies are doing social good programs and maybe they could use some help promoting that. But it's what we went back to when talking about ambassador and that the fact that this is a partnership, you know, and we are a company that, you know, exists to make profit, of course. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but right now, you know, the conversations we're having with our clients is not, Hey, here's a new idea that we think you should spend $50,000 on, but what can we do to help? What can we do free of charge to help you? We just made our platform free for the next month for anybody that wants to use it. It's something small, but you know, we are just trying to help because those brands, you know, without their money, we don't exist. So we want to make sure they make it through this and that, you know, when you get to the other side, I think you'll also remember the influencers that use their platforms for good. I think you'll remember the brands that tried to help out and you'll mm-hmm. remember the ones who were silent, you know? Totally. And so yeah. I think that's going to be an enduring legacy from this whole situation is, you know, who is out there trying to help and who was pretty absent. Right. So let's fast forward a little bit to the future where COVID-19 is behind us. How do you think the crisis will impact future marketing efforts for the rest of the year? I think that budgets are going to be looked at much more carefully. I think that even if the economy reopens in May 15th and it just goes along as if nothing happened, which will not happen, but let's assume that did, you're still talking about, you know, 15, 20% down, most companies being 15 or 20% down on the year. So I think you're going to see each dollar has to work harder for brands. I do think that influencer pricing was inflated and it was too high. And I think that this will correct it. I don't think influencers will just be able to go back to charging what they were before. But I think they'll also have to work harder. And that's on everyone. I think the, you know, the campaigns that, you know, we're running for our clients, we have to work that much harder to make sure that they are effective because there's just going to be less cash floating around. So there's going to be more competition for access to it. That makes sense. Talk to us about a drink with James. Yeah. You want to know a little bit more about the podcast. Obviously, Mitzi and I know about it, but our yeah. listeners want to know about it. You mentioned it was four or five years into four that you started this. And it was like kind of just then that you were like, yeah, I have a unique perspective. I have something special to offer. So obviously, that's a bit of the answer, but maybe expand on that. And how is it compared to what you expected? Would you suggest other founders take that approach to thought leadership? Give it all to us. Yeah. So I have a complex relationship with the word thought leadership in general because I think that it is something that some founders think is a strategy. And again, it's no different than what I was saying with influencers. Like a lot of founders that, you know, work with PR companies and those PR companies say, Oh, we're gonna write a couple of thought leadership pieces for you every month and we'll get you into, you know, ad week or something. That's not thought leadership. You have to actually 
Again, you actually have to have a unique point of view that is different. We started that because at the time there was no good information out there for influencers. And if you're starting a company, there are hundreds and hundreds of books and thousands of blogs that tell you how to fundraise, how to hire, how to fire, how to build a business plan, how to go to market. Like all of those things exist. But when we started Drink with James, there was nothing for influencers on how they should be thinking about this. And they were part of this larger global advertising industry that is complex as well. And I don't think a lot of influencers fully understood the inner workings of that. And I felt like as somebody who used to be a content creator and had been in that space and publishing stuff on the internet for years and built a following, and then someone who ran a business helping influencers and someone who executed campaigns and ran campaigns with clients, I had a unique perspective and I could kind of see a problem or you know a situation from the point of an influencer, the point of the brand, and the point of a agency or platform. So, you know, we started doing it as a YouTube, you know, just as videos. And I think we're 193, 194. And, you know, the reason I would suggest it to other founders, like I do think we've been fortunate that it's it has, you know, driven a good amount of business. I think that, you know, when you look at the landscape and our competitors, I think you know, they're not as many public faces. I think I've, through this show, I've become a very public face of four and people like to know who runs a company, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know who runs right. Tesla, you know who runs Amazon, you know who runs Apple, who runs Facebook. I'm not putting myself in any way, shape or form in the room with those giants, but people don't want to work with an anonymous company. They want to put a name and a face to it. And so I think that's been helpful, but I think selfishly, What's been incredible about Drink with James is that I have to, you know, for 20 minutes a week, I have to talk about this stuff. And as the company grows, we're not huge, but we're, you know, 35 people. As the company grows and I focus more on running that company, I, by nature, get further and further away from the minutiae of what we're doing. And doing Drink with James forces me to stay connected to the space forces me to stay connected to the work because I know I have to continue to, you know, pump out these episodes every week. Mm -hmm. So I think that selfishly for me has been the biggest impact is the pressure to continue to be able to lead, to really understand enough about what's happening to definitively say, this is what I think is happening and this is what I think will happen and this is what everyone should be doing. So it's been hugely valuable in that regard. It's awesome. So moving to our second last question here, we like to ask everyone who's on the show this question, what brands or influencers do you feel are making waves online right now and who's catching your eye? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, I have to, again, I have my bias, but I've loved working on Sephora and doing Sephora Squad. I think that that's such an incredible program and they have shown up in a way that most brands don't and they have you know, they came out and said, hey, we're about inclusivity and diversity and we're about making sure every voice is heard and they continue to back that up with this incredible program. So I think that, you know, I think in the world of beauty, they're seen as best in class and we feel really, really privileged to be able to work with them every day on those programs. So I have to say them. And then, you know, for Influencers, you know, I always, I try every couple of weeks to follow new people and unfollow some and keep my feed fresh so I can kind of see what's going on. You know, during the coronavirus, I mean, my favorite thing that I've seen that's come out of it is my friend Jamie Beck and uh, her isolation creation hashtag. Oh, nice. So she's an artist living in Provence and dedicated herself to creating a new piece of art every day that they were in quarantine and Isolation Creation has tens of thousands of submissions now of these incredible artists who are cooped up or people who aren't, you know, artists in their day job, but are, uh, you know, artistically inclined. There's, oh no, Mm -hmm. sorry, there's 136,000 posts and she just started that hashtag 20 something days ago. So it's been really cool to see that. And, uh, I think she's done an amazing job of, you know, being an artist, but being this like authentic person that is, she's very much herself and to see her inspire, 
you know, and, and create this community around artists, which, you know, Instagram has kind of moved away from it. When social started, it used to be about, you would put things on the internet and say, hey, this is what I made. And it was all about what you created. And now it's all about, look at me. So it used to be, look at what I made. Now it's look at me. So it's been nice to see, even for a little bit, it go back to look at what I made. Man, that is cool. I didn't even really think about that, but I can definitely see what you mean. Also, the isolation creation thing just reminded me of, uh, have you seen Some Good News? Yes. Like with John Krasinski. Yeah, it's really Even that too, like the episodes he's putting out are really cool, but beyond that, what I think it's doing is causing people to look for the good news Mm -hmm. and create some of their own or just like, I don't know, send a ton of stuff in as far as what they're doing to pass the time or make the most of it. So, it's cool the way that things are going, just like you said, back to look what I'm doing or look what I made or look what I'm contributing even. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Last question. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you're currently working on and where listeners can connect with you. Yeah. I mean, what I'm working on, I mean, what I'm working on is continuing to, you know, run a business during the most dramatic economic collapse in the history of the world. That is keeping me relatively busy. That's significant. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you know, our social team, they do a great job. And, you know, following Four's Instagram is, I think, a pretty good follow if you're in the industry. And I am on mine at James Nord. If you want to watch me ride a bike or something, that's the place (laughs) to do it. But yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, this has been pure value. And I like it was just a good mix of practical Mm -hmm. and hot takes around like (laughs) which I knew we could count on you for. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) love it. And uh, also just kind of good overall perspective, including some bias that is welcomed Mm -hmm. um, just around the marketing industry and what's going on. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you guys. It was great. This episode of Wave Social Podcast is powered by Arcade Studios. Show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found at wavesocialpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you've got questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, hit us up at wavesocial on Instagram. Thanks for joining us.